And be, the reason is we believe Jesus changes lives and we would love for you to meet him. And part of the reason we're uh, loving Jesus and part of the reason we're, we're doing a, a series as a church at the moment uh, on mission, which simply is sharing Jesus with others. We've had some great messages so far. Uh, at the start of the series, we looked at the power of the gospel. Riley preached a wonderful message two weeks ago about being in it to win it, about sharing the gospel with others. And this week, we're really... Uh, last week, again, we were looking at the sovereignty of God on mission. And this week, we're pausing on a really difficult topic, and that is the fear of man when it comes to mission. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 6 and then pray for us as we begin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's going to be up on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. This is the word of God. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not by what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you so much that you're with us. And we know this because of the Lord Jesus and his promise. Behold, I am with you always. And yet when it comes to this topic of sharing the good news of Jesus with others, Lord, you know we come in weakness, often with fear, often with disobedience. And so we ask, Lord, have mercy on us. Show us your grace this morning. Show us more of Christ, we pray. Soften our hearts towards you, Lord. Help us to walk in faithfulness by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is possibly no greater barrier to sharing the gospel with others than the fear 
of man. You're sitting on the train on the way to work. You pull out your Bible and then you put it back in your bag again because you're mindful of everybody's attention on the carriage focused on you. You're asked to pray before dinner at the restaurant and you wait to see that the waitress is gone and you scan the room to make sure there's not a single face that you might recognize. And then you pray, but you make that the quickest possible prayer. You're asked about your church. How many people go to your church and how many services do you run? And you exaggerate the numbers to make it sound more impressive. Your pastor explains about a new initiative to share Jesus with your neighbors. I don't know, something involving giving gifts and knocking on doors. And asks you to participate. And immediately your heart begins to race. Your palms begin to sweat. And you begin spinning excuses in your mind about why you can't be involved. What do all of these illustrations have in common? Two things. Firstly, they're examples of the fear of man. And secondly, they're examples of struggles that I have had personally. You know, the truth is that I am somebody who struggles with the fear of man. And the fear of man is not only one of the most common issues facing the church, it's one of the greatest obstacles we face to being obedient to the call of Jesus upon our lives. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you'll know that Jesus calls us to share the good news about himself with others. It's not an optional part of following him. He says in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But here's the thing. If Jesus is calling us to be on mission, to share his message with anyone and everyone who will listen, why do we find it so hard to do? And one of the major reasons is the fear of man. If you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, Mission and the Fear of Man. I've got two points for us this morning but really one hope for all of us together, and that is that embracing the fear of the Lord would be faithful on mission. I want us not to live in the fear of man, and I believe God is out to help us to embrace the fear of the Lord and together to be faithful on mission. So let's dive into point number one for our time together this morning, which is the origin of the fear of man. Uh, to start off our time together, I really want to begin by looking at where does this fear of man come from? What causes it? But before we do, we probably need to even define what we're talking about uh, in the fear of man. The fear of man simply is an excessive or sinful concern with what others think about us. Uh, Ed Welch, in his brilliant book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, 
describes it this way. He says, it's an inordinate desire for human approval or an intense fear of being rejected. So true. Desiring approval, fearful of being rejected. Ken Sandy, in his book, Peacemaker, says it this way. He says, this can take on many forms. Sometimes it involves an actual fear of what others can do to us, but are most commonly seen as an excessive concern about what others think about us. This can lead to a preoccupation with acceptance, approval, popularity, personal comparison, self-image, or pleasing others. This idol can make us reluctant to confront serious sin. The constant desire for approval and acceptance can cause us to gossip or prevent us from speaking out on moral issues and add, add, it can also prevent us from sharing the gospel with our friends and family members. You know, it can be a fear of what others might do to us, but usually the fear of men is actually a fear of what others think. It's an idol of self and our image. We treat others and what they think about us like a god, and we sacrifice for them to improve the way they think about us. We worship them in order to improve the way they think about us, and we obey them in order to achieve approval. You know, it's been said that the fear of man is like having a handle on your back that anybody can grab and move you around in any direction which they please. I think that's so true. And the question I want us to consider in this first point is really that question of where does this come from? What are the origins of the fear of man? And I want to put before us two simple origins. And the first is this, that the fear of man comes from a trust in man and not in God. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, he says this, so convicting. Thus is the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, fundamental to the fear of man is a deep trust in people at the expense of God. And it rings true for us, doesn't it? You know, when, when self-image becomes your focus, when your reputation is what you live for, it's a lousy God. The fruit in your life quickly becomes anxiety and fear and overcommitment and exhaustion. You know, often people are surprised to learn that I'm someone who struggles with the fear of man. And that is because I used to bowl people over with my strong opinions and the things I'd say to them. And I wouldn't listen. And the reason is I was so terrified of not having the words to say and people thinking I didn't know what I was talking about. That I would prepare in advance what I would then deliver to people. And it was all because of my fear of man. And see, Jeremiah quotes Psalm 1 to show us that what the person who trusts in God is actually like. They're like a big oak tree that is unmoved and has this quietness, this peace, this trust. It bears this good fruit as it 
meditates on the scriptures and loves when God tells him or her what to do. And we see this lack of trust not only playing out in the fruit of an anxious and overwhelmed life, but also in evangelism. You know, rather than trusting in the gospel message's power, we start to tell ourselves that our friends are just not interested in Jesus. Our friends, they've just kind of heard this all before and they're just going to dismiss it. And we begin to start believing that actually we have to take over the role of the Holy Spirit and bring conviction. And that seems so hard. And the possibility of us getting rejected seems so likely. And we crave their approval so much that we're silent. And we don't say anything. You see, the fear of man comes from a trust in people and not in God. But not just that. Possibly even more importantly, the fear of man comes from a self-obsession. You know, the fear of man is more than just a trust in others apart from God. It actually reflects a deep trust in and love of self. You know, when Jesus was asked what God requires of us, he said the following to his disciples. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says our hearts and our minds and our very beings are meant to be focused on loving God. And when you understand the message of the gospel, that is such a wonderful thing. Because God is so glorious and so loving that his heart was to send the Lord Jesus to die in our place. I mean, to think on God is to think on the most glorious, most loving, most majestic, most powerful, most gracious being in the universe. To serve him is the greatest privilege that could be ever placed on a person. He's the maker of the whole universe and he knows and he loves and his friends with you. And our great calling and privilege as Christians is to love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the fear of man comes from taking our gaze off the Lord and onto ourselves. Instead of loving God the most and loving our neighbors, next we love ourselves first. And we also see this playing out when it comes to sharing Jesus with others. You know, Jesus says to his disciples and those gathered in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see what Jesus is promising there? You know, the deep and true message of the gospel that's true, whether you've 
been following Jesus for 40 years or you're not even following Jesus is that the deep sense that we have as people that every person is worthy of dignity and respect comes from the truth that we were made by God precious in his image. But the truth is also that we're not the good people that our society says. We are not. And deep down inside, we know that. We don't live up to our own values. We're selfish. We've spurned the Holy God. We don't love him the most with our heart, mind, soul, strength. We're actually wicked people. And God is just. And he must punish us for our wickedness. And he has decreed hell as his judgment in response. And yet out of love for his people, facing his just wrath, he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to pay our penalty in full, that simply by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, we might be reconciled to God once more. But here's the thing I want us to think about this morning as we consider the truth of the gospel. What does it say about us? when we withhold the truth of the gospel out of the fear of creating an awkward situation, out of the fear of being labelled that guy. You know, the famous magician and atheist, Penn Jillette, says the following. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytise. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So true, isn't it? You know, when what others think of us becomes more important to us than their eternal plight, it shows that our priorities have become really messed up. It reveals that we have become self-obsessed. You know, even just in my reading this week in John chapter 12, it talks about how many of the authorities believed in Jesus and yet for fear of the Pharisees didn't say anything. And in John chapter 12, verse 43, it says, because they love the glory that comes from men more than they love the glory that comes from God. And isn't that true of us as well? You know, can we honestly say that we love our neighbors if we care more about being seen as a nice guy than we do about their eternal plight apart from Christ? The answer is we can't. Mark Deber puts it this way in his excellent book on evangelism. He says, we are called to love others. We share the gospel because we love people. And we don't share the gospel because we don't love people. Instead, we wrongly fear them. We don't want to cause awkwardness. We want their respect. And after all, we figure if we try to share the gospel with them, we'll look foolish. And so we are quiet. Listen to this. This It's so convicting. We protect our pride at the cost of their souls. In the name of not wanting to look weird, we are content to be complicit 
in their being lost. As one friend said, I don't want to be the stereotypical Christian on a plane. We protect our pride at the cost of their souls. Doesn't that grab your heart? You know, and that's the origin of the fear of man. It comes from a trust in man and not in God. And it comes from a self-obsession rather than a genuine love for God and for our neighbors. But not just point number one, the origins of the fear of man. I don't want us to just kind of leave us sitting there. Point number two, we want to change, we want to grow. And so we come to point number two, growing in the fear of the Lord. You know, we want more than just to look at where the fear of man comes from. We want hope for change. We want to understand more than just how it creates a hindrance to evangelism. We want to grow to be faithful in sharing the gospel with others. And so we come now to our passage for this morning, this afternoon, which really gives us some great wisdom in how to grow. Paul in this passage explains two roots of his fear of the Lord that empowers his mission, being on mission, and at the same time, three fruits of his fear of the Lord in his ministry that he goes about doing. But before we unpack the passage, I just want to pause briefly just to even think about this question of what actually is the fear of the Lord. Mark Dever, again, in his excellent book, describes it so helpfully. So listen to Mr. Deva. He says this. He says, when we don't share the gospel, we are essentially refusing to live in the fear of the Lord. We are not regarding him or his will as the final and ultimate rule of our actions. To fear God is to love him. When the one who is our all-powerful creator and judge is also our merciful redeemer and savior, then we have found the perfect object for the entire devotion of our heart. And that devotion will lead us to share the good news about him with others. We should pray that God will grow us in us a greater love and fear of him. I think that's so well put. To fear the Lord isn't like me watching scary movies. I mean, anyone that knows me and Charlotte uh, will know I'm terrible in in scary movies. Like, I just feel for them and what's going to happen to them. And I begin to sort of like hide behind Charlotte as the movie progresses because I just get really scared for them and stuff. And I'm shocked. I hate it so bad. But that's not what the fear of the Lord is. It's not that kind of fear. It's about reverence. It's having this deep reverence and love for God so that you're concerned most for what God says, not what others say. And so you listen to him, you want to hear from him and what he says, and you want to obey what he says as well. And in order to unpack how we can grow in the fear of the Lord, we want to turn now to our passage and understand it. And we want to dive right into the center of our passage, because I think that's a key for understanding what Paul is going to say. So read with me verse 11. Paul says this. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, Paul's mission was empowered by the fear of the Lord. But notice what he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What Paul has said previously in this verse is a description of how Paul sought to live in the fear of the Lord. In fact, we see two root principles 
that drove his fear of the Lord. And the first is this. It's actually somewhat surprising. You might not expect this. And that is that Paul's fear of the Lord came from his focus on the resurrection to come. Read with me again verse 6 of our passage. It says this, verse 6, Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. See, Paul has just been talking about God's plan to replace our broken bodies with something far more glorious. The difference between what a tent is and what a full-on beautiful building is, says Paul. And because of the coming resurrection, he says, we always have courage. We always have confidence. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say we're never afraid. In fact, in his first letter to Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. No, courage is not the absence of fear, but courage is faithfulness in the midst of it. Speaking about his courage from the resurrection, Paul goes on in the second half of verse 6. He says the following. He says, So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are always of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says, while we're alive, we're separated from the Lord. More than that, we're not like the Israelites who walk through the wilderness with the pillar of fire and the, and the cloud to cover them where they could physically see this symbol of the presence of the Lord. No, we walk by faith. We live by faith. More than that, Paul says, our desire is to be away from the body. Paul's saying our desire is to die. We would rather die and be at home with the Lord in his presence. You see, Paul had this deep focus on the resurrection life to come, and this powered his fear of the Lord. Well, here's the tough question. What about for you? Is your deepest desire to die and be with the Lord? I think for many of us in this neighborhood, our honest answer most of the time no. There are things that, quite frankly, we would love to kind of have happen first before we die to be with the Lord, like to get married or maybe own a home or maybe travel around the country or maybe have a fulfilling career or maybe have kids or maybe watch your kids grow up. And if the Lord was to call us home today, we'd probably be a little bit disappointed. It shows that we don't properly understand what awaits us with Christ. Death is not the end of life. It's It's the gateway into the fullness of it. No one who's squatting in a tent knocks back the gift of a palace. And that is the picture of the life that is to come with Christ that Paul is just talking about. You know, if our eyes and our hearts are captivated by the things of this world, we will never have the courage to be faithful on mission. Because it's too easy to lose the things in this world. It's too easy to lose your health. It's too easy to lose your wealth. It's too easy to lose your respect in the eyes of others. 
Would we have Paul's fear of the Lord? Would we have his faithfulness on mission? We need his laser-sharp focus on the resurrection that is to come. But more than that, not just Paul's fear of the Lord came from his focus on the resurrection to come, but secondly, Paul's fear of the Lord came from his focus on God's final judgment. You know, the God of our culture is a very small God. The God of our culture, if he exists, is a defanged God. He's all cuddles and he's no bite. You see, our culture, largely having moved on from God, has replaced God with ourselves. We are God. Our rights, our desires, our happiness, that comes first. And so therefore, in the logic of our culture, if there is a God, that God must exist to serve us to serve our rights, to serve our desires, to give us our happiness. God is kind of our divine life assistant. He exists to serve us and make us happy and to give us the things we want. And since God is our assistant, we place ourselves above him. And the thought of God judging anyone, it actually feels really offensive. I mean, what gives God the right? And yet the God of our culture is nearly impossible to fear. But you see, the God of the Bible is completely different. He's all-powerful. He's all-glorious. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. And He is to be revered. He's the maker of everything that exists in the universe. He's the source of everything that exists that is good. And no one has any rights when they stand before Him. They have no more rights than a canvas does standing before a painter. You see, the universe owes its everything to him, and he owes nothing to us or anything in the universe. He is indebted to no one. And so Paul says the following in verse 9. He says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says we long to be with the Lord. We long to be with him. We long to please him. We live to please him, whether we live or whether we die, says Paul. For we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a word that word judgment seat refers to a raised platform that would have a chair on it where a judge or a magistrate would preside over cases before him. You see, the Bible teaches that at the end of the age, every person will stand before Christ and give an account for their life. The judgment they will receive from Christ will be based on their works done in this life. Works done by word or thought or deed. And in this judgment, every person will receive repayment for what they have done in this life. The good things and the things that are lacking. Now, if you're sitting here and you've not placed your trust in Christ, the message of the scripture is that the verdict written over your life will be guilty as charged for every wrongdoing. And you'll receive a full punishment for every failing. 
And yet if you trust in Christ, if you put your trust in him, you receive his perfect obedience on your behalf. However, you will still be judged on that last day for how you have served. But rather than a judgment for punishment, a judgment for rewards. You know, Paul Barnett in his commentary explains it this way. He says, The sure prospect of the judgment seat reminds the Corinthians and all believers that while they are righteous in Christ by faith alone, the faith that justifies is to be expressed by love and obedience and by pleasing the Lord. You know, so often as Christians, we think that because of grace, how we serve the Lord in this life is of little or no consequence. And yet Paul wants you to see that's wrong. One day we will stand before the risen Lord and we will receive our due for how we have served him in this life. And for those who have placed their trust in Christ, that is to receive rich and generous reward from our generous and merciful King for every good act done to glorify him. And so would we have Paul's fear of the Lord, we need to have his focus on the resurrection to come and on God's final judgment. Not just those two roots of Paul's fear of the Lord, but also three fruits that we see in this passage. See, Paul doesn't just leave us here. He goes on to show in and through what he says in the remainder of our passage, these three different fruits of his fear of the Lord in his ministry. And these three fruits of his fear of the Lord aren't just evidences of the presence of the fear of the Lord, they actually each also means of grace by which we can grow in the fear of the Lord. And the first one is actually, it's a really obvious one that you see right in verse 11. And that is that the first fruit is that Paul persuaded others to follow Christ. Read with me again, verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You know, notice Paul doesn't say here that he simply tells people about Jesus, although he does. No, Paul says here he persuades them. You see, persuade is to try and change someone's opinion. It's to convince them of the truth. In chapter 4, Paul explains that he refuses to practice you know, any dodgy, like dece deceptive or sneaky techniques. He says he's not going to do anything sneaky like smoke machines and you know, flashy lights and things to try and trick people into following Jesus. No, none of that. Yet nevertheless... He's out to convince people that Jesus Christ is the Lord. You know, I, are you someone who, like the thought of even mentioning Jesus makes you feel a little bit ill? The thought of even just sharing Jesus with someone else makes you feel a little bit, you know, sweaty hands and uncomfortable. Well, Paul himself was fearful. He faced persecution for sharing Jesus with others. And yet the fear of the Lord empowered him. Not just to share, but to persuade. You see, persuading others to share Christ isn't just a fruit of the fear of the Lord. It's a means of growing in it as well. If you struggle with the fear of a man like me, you might, you might be listening to this and saying, you know what, I'm just going to sort out my fear of the man issues. I'm going to stay quiet until I kind of sort all that out. I'm going to grow in the fear of the Lord. I'm going to keep really quiet about any of this. And then I'll go and share Jesus with other people. But if you do that, you're missing this beautiful opportunity to grow. You know, Paul puts it this way in Philemon verse 6. He says that, I'm praying that the sharing of your faith might, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul says 
He sees a link between sharing your faith in Christ and fully appreciating everything Jesus has done for you. And so persuading others to follow Christ isn't just a fruit of Paul's ministry. It's a means by which we can grow. But secondly, not just that he persuaded others to follow Christ, the second fruit is that Paul was able to live with complete openness and honesty. Read with me verse 11 again. He says, knowing, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. You know, in Corinth, where Paul's writing this letter, there were all these professional preachers who were like really showy and you know, very good at speaking and looked really impressive, and yet they were fake. It was all show. And Paul's saying he's all about honesty and integrity in the way he's conducting himself with them. He's all about what's in the heart, actually, what's really true. It's not only that God sees who we are, says Paul. It's that you can see as well. We've sought to live openly and honestly before you. It's one of the beautiful fruits of the gospel. When you come to see that Jesus Christ has paid for all of your sin and all of your shame on the cross, and that his verdict is final because of faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need to be afraid of what people think of you. You don't need to be afraid of your failings or your failures or things that you might otherwise be ashamed of. Christ has paid for it all. You can be open and honest with others about your struggle, knowing the verdict that you have already in Christ. You see, one of the great hindrances we have to faithful proclamation of the gospel is that so often, due to the fear of man, we hide away our true thoughts and our feelings. I remember when I was in college uh, training as a physiotherapist, um, I remember I'd gone out for drinks with a bunch of my friends at college, and they got to that point where, you know, you've had a few too many drinks and you get really, really honest. And um, this friend of mine, she was just in one of those, like, moments, and she was really honest with me, and she said, Brennan, it's like you think you're way too good for us. And I just felt really convicted in that moment that, I'd been hiding all my failures away from my friends because I was ashamed of what they think, think of me. I was so worried about how others would think I'd been keeping it all a secret and in doing so, kind of misleading them into thinking that Christians are people that are trying to kind of earn their way into heaven by living these kind of perfect, perfect lives. More, I think when we hide and we conceal our relationship with God, we never share what we're reading or what we're praying or what we're thinking or what we're wrestling with. We just kind of look like anyone else. But a fruit of the fear of the Lord is openness and honesty because you know God's verdict over your life through Christ. But here's the thing. It's not only a fruit of the fear of the Lord. It's also a means of growing in it as well. Start letting people into your world. I mean, if you're sitting here and you feel convicted that the fear of, the, of man is prevalent in your life, this is a wonderful place to start. Let people in. You know, first step, if you're sitting here and you think, you know, this is me, Brendan. Like, I'm really struggling with this. I'm not being faithful on mission. I'm struggling with the fear of man. 
let people in. Let, let them know it. Confess it to someone in your gospel community or someone in your group, a trusted Christian. The fear of man is a sin. It's dishonoring to the Lord. Repent of it. Believe in Christ that he has forgiven all of your sins. Confess it to a brother or sister. You know, that is not part of who you are. You're so easy to believe. You know, I, I just, I'm just a, a quiet person. I, just, I don't share the gospel. That's just not me. I'm just someone who's a bit more reserved, a bit more quiet. That, that's not the case. It's not who you are. That's part of your old self. You know, the only reason as Christians we continue to sin is not because sin has power over us. It's because we love it. So pray and ask the Lord to change your heart. Ask the Lord to give you more love for the Lord Jesus. Ask the Lord to change your heart, to reveal more of himself to you, more of his majesty and his glory and his worth and his grace. And utilize the gifts of grace that God has given you in your life. Your gospel community, the people you're doing life with, share it with them. Ask them to hold you accountable. If you're tempted to exaggerate the truth about something in your life with someone else, let them know you're feeling tempted. Ask them to pray for you. There's no shame in that. You know, maybe you're really struggling with this and, and you think, you know what, I think this is going to need some focused attention in my life. Ask someone in this church that you really respect the disciple you in this. You say, you know, I'm really struggling with the fear of men. Could we read together... When people are big and God is small, I really want to grow and change in this. And that's the second fruit. Paul was able to live with complete openness and honesty. But not just that, finally, fruit number three, Paul lived a life centered on Jesus. Read with me again, verse 13 through to 15. He says the following He says, For if we're beside ourselves for God, and if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's saying, everything we do is for the sake of God and for the sake of you. We've been completely captivated by Jesus. He controls our everything. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ. You know, if the essence of the fear of man is self-obsession, the essence of the fear of the Lord is Christ's obsession. It's also not just the essence of the fear of the Lord, Christ's obsession, but it's the essence of how we grow in the fear of the Lord. We make Christ the focus of our everything. We make Christ the focus of our job. We make Christ the focus of how we live and where we live. We make Christ the focus of how we raise our kids, how we serve in the church of Christ. We make Christ the focus of our everything. But here's the thing. It's not something we can just will ourselves to do. But it's actually a miracle of grace that he's already begun in each and every one of us that have put our trust in him. See, the beautiful news of the gospel is that the God who said that light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, like a floodlight, lit up the cross 
and revealed his glory to you and led you to believe in him. He has, Paul will go on to say in just a couple of verses after our passage, made you into a new spiritual creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. And as we all together continue to stare at the Lord Jesus, he is transforming us to be more and more like him. Until one day, when we stand before his judgment seat, fearing for nothing, Christ will be our all. Friends, there's possibly no greater hindrance to sharing the gospel with others than the fear of man. For all of us at different times, the thought of sharing Jesus with others makes us feel a little bit nervous, afraid, slightly ill. These are the fruits of the fear of man. Yet the fear of man comes from placing our trust in people, not in God. It comes most of all from an obsession with ourselves and not with the Lord Jesus. And yet Paul built his life upon the fear of the Lord by keeping his gaze laser focused on the resurrection that is to come and on the final judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this fear of the Lord led him to overflow into the fruits of persuading others to follow Christ, walking with openness and honesty and a life that was centered on Jesus. Friends, let's pray that embracing the fear of the Lord, we would together be faithful on mission. Lord Jesus, this afternoon again, we're so thankful for your kindness with us. Thankful, Lord, that though we're a people that so often really struggle with the fear of the Lord, really struggle to not overly fear man, you are so patient with us. Just like you found us in chains, in darkness, spiritually dead to you, unable to or unwilling to please you morally in any way and rescued us. So too, as you transform us by your grace, you are patient and kind with us again. Lord God, on behalf of all of us gathered here, Lord, we ask and pray, Lord, that you would increase our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would Jesus Christ, risen and reigning, ever increasingly be our everything, Lord? Would less and less we find ourselves tempted to look at and long for the things of this world, whether they be property, possessions, relationships, approval, anything? And with ever, every passing day, more and more, would we want for nothing else than to please you and to share with others the beautiful hope that's to be found in knowing the King of glory, in whose name we pray. Amen.